if we societally do value that people, all people should have access to a certain level of housing, mm -hmm. then we have the ability right now with what we control with land and how we finance access to land and building things, we have the ability to bring on the housing right now. Because we are going to own these buildings for a very long time, uh, we are, we're very interested in investing in the buildings to deliver savings over time. So we, we, we build buildings that are more sustainable, that use less energy, less water, because that means it's going to be more affordable to run those buildings over the long term. I'm John Lewis, and you're listening to 360 Degree City, a podcast where we talk to people who are working to make cities better. Our hope is that after each episode, you'll start to see your own city from a slightly different angle. 360 Degree City is brought to you by the team at Intelligent Futures. We're a team of versatile urban problem solvers, and our aim is to figure out better ways of living together. In Canada, the building industry produces 35% of the waste that heads to the landfill. And worldwide, the building industry consumes more than half of the world's physical resources and accounts for up to 40% of the world's energy use. Environmental performance is often seen as an expensive, non-essential feature to affordable housing solutions. And yet, when considering broader implications of sustainability and livability, integrating environmental performance into affordable housing makes sense. And over the next number of months, our team at Intelligent Futures will be exploring the following question. How can environmental performance be fundamentally integrated into the economic model of affordable housing projects in order to enhance the long-term livability and viability of projects? Super short and catchy, I know. This question is guiding the Better Housing Lab, a solutions lab that's being funded by the Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation, or CMHC for short. The CMHC Solutions Lab program is intended to be a catalyst for driving action and innovation in the affordable housing sector. And our team initiated this lab alongside with Attainable Homes Calgary, Alberta Ecotrust, the City of Calgary Affordable Housing Division, and Dr. Sasha Sinkova of the University of Calgary. So for the rest of 2020, the podcast will be focused on all things related to that challenge question for our solutions lab. The episodes are going to explore a variety of factors that influence affordable housing, economics, environmental performance, and livability, and will also serve as homework for the dozens of folks who are participating in the solutions lab process for the next number of months. Affordable housing has many definitions, but the CMHC considers housing affordable when a household spends less than 30% of its pre-tax income on adequate shelter. We're going to get into the definition a bit further later in this episode. Another key concept is the housing continuum, which visually depicts different types of housing. This continuum portrays a progression of housing from emergency shelters and transitional housing to subsidized rental to market-based rental housing and then home ownership. Generally, the continuum shifts from higher levels of government support to lower levels of government support as it approaches home ownership. For example, emergency shelters and subsidized rental housing will have government support, while home ownership would have limited or no support. And it's helpful to see this continuum visually, so we've attached some of those resources in our show notes. Housing is provided in a variety of forms by many different organizations. Private developers, government agencies, and nonprofit organizations deliver and operate different types of housing. And housing providers have many innovative tools and models that allow for the delivery of affordable housing. And that's what we want to dive into today. 
So you're going to hear from two organizations who provide affordable housing at different points in the housing continuum. First up, we'll learn a bit about how Catalyst Community Development Society is delivering affordable rental housing in British Columbia. Last fall, I had a conversation with Robert Brown, the president of Catalyst. Uh, we're a nonprofit society that uh, develops, owns, and operates uh, below market rental housing and affordable community spaces. Here are a few snapshots from my conversation with Robert. Uh, in a lot of our projects that touch on affordable housing, uh, it seems like we can lose weeks, months, years off of our own lives talking about what's the definition of affordable housing for, <laughs> for, for, for Catalyst. Uh, how do you define uh, affordability and affordable housing? Yeah, it's a great question because there is, to be frank, a lot, a lot of confusion. And I think um, people, um, <coughs> various groups have used the word affordable and, and it doesn't, it's not what other people think of affordable. Mm -hmm. So, it, it does confuse the landscape and the conversation. Um, for us, as I was saying earlier, that the, the the critical part for us is that we want to have our rents affordable, based on what people are earning and as incomes. Mm -hmm. Right? Mm -hmm. It's got to be connected to income because what we've seen in the real estate market, and it, when people ask why do we have a housing crisis, I say I'll, I'll give you three numbers. One is in the last 15 years that the price of an East Vancouver condo has gone up 320%. The rents in the, in the same time have gone up 80% and incomes have gone up 17%. <laughs> right wow. there, that, that we have basically, we have a real estate market that is disconnected. There's a disconnect between rent and, and purchase price and people's incomes. And so mm -hmm. we, we constantly bring it back to that and say, what are people earning in the community that we're doing a project in? And then, and that can be quite a range. So we have, do have quite a range. I say in, in our Victoria project, typically our, we're aiming for households. This is household income, so it could be two earners, but it, you know, one or two earners. And, and it's um, that range in Victoria project is, Twenty-five thousand to sixty-five thousand dollars a year. Now, so and just again as a, a kind of frame of reference, if I'm earning forty thousand dollars a year, based on thirty percent of my income, no more than thirty percent of my income on rent, I would pay a thousand dollars a month in rent. Mm -hmm. Right. So mm -hmm. it's, it's it's manageable. Right. Right. Um, and then at the same time, we know that there are people in our community that aren't working or, or have a disability or, or basically have, have limited earning capacity. That's not our focus because we're not a, a service provider, like we don't provide support services, but we, but we work with other nonprofits that do. So in a project that we're doing in Port Moody, we have, we have about 10% of the homes will be going to to and rent it to people who are on a disability allowance, which is, believe it or not, is three seventy-five a month. Oh wow! It's the rent that we're charging for those units. Hmm. And and so we have a very wide range. Whereas in Vancouver, a, a portion of some of our homes in in some of our projects can be, you know, ten percent below market. That 
you know, 10% below market for a three bedroom home in a great location in Vancouver can be, you know, $3,000 a month. Right. So, so there's quite a range, but it's, it, we really try and pay attention to what is the income in the neighborhood in which we're building. Maybe you could explain uh, to folks uh, what it means, how does it work, what it's like uh, to be a nonprofit real estate developer versus uh, what people might understand of, uh, you know, the typical for-profit development. Yeah, for sure. It, it's um, We actually call ourselves a nonprofit real estate developer intentionally so that we can spark a conversation like this. So mm, people, perfect. <laughs> what do you mean? That doesn't make sense. It's an oxymoron. Yeah. So um, we do it deliberately. And, and I would sum it up by saying that we really do uh, pretty much what any real estate developer does. But the difference is, is our objectives, right? Um, generally speaking, the objective of a market developer is to maximize profit. And the objective of Catalyst as a nonprofit developer is to maximize benefit to the community. So that, so if you, if you think about what a developer does, we do the same thing. We go and find land, we design buildings, we build buildings, we own and operate them. But we do it through the lens of how can we maximize the amount of benefit that we deliver to the community, whether that's in the form of housing and, and if it's housing, how affordable can we make that housing rather than how much can we sell this housing for. And community spaces, it's the same thing. It's, it's how do we make those spaces as sustainable and as affordable as possible. If, if, if I could dive in a little bit to... Um uh the how you achieve that i guess the, there's the element of of um being a non-profit organization then you you shave off um you know a certain percentage of uh of, of a project that would go to profit what what are what are the differences from your investor pool to the trades that you work with what's the what's the difference to make that that work to achieve those uh incredible uh benefits for for what the the people living there realize in order to deliver the affordability we're trying to do two things one is one is reduce the cost of our project, right? Because the, the the more afford the, the less the cost of the project, the less the mortgages that we have to carry, and therefore lower the rents that we can charge. If all we're doing is really trying to cover the costs of our mortgage and our operating costs, so that's the first thing. And then secondly is is reducing the cost of our mortgage. So if we can go and get preferential mortgage terms from people who, lenders who want to promote the delivery of affordable housing, whether that's Van City, CMHC, BC Housing, we'll, that's where we'll go for that money. So on the, on the cost side, really what we do is, first of all, start with probably the biggest cost, and that's land, yeah. right? We, we can't afford to go out and buy market at land and then build below market rental housing. So this is where our partnerships with a variety of people come in. One is with nonprofits, including churches, who have land and they want to redevelop it, but they, they don't need to get you know, full market value for that land and they'll invest it into the project. Uh, we, as I mentioned on Main Street, we're working with a municipality. We have three projects right now where there's land is leased at basically very, very low cost from a, from a municipality. 
Um, so we, we, we take that land cost or a good chunk of that land cost out of the, the equation. Right. So then the second piece we do, we really, we don't, we haven't been able to find a way to find people to build our buildings more cheaply. Like we, <laughs> we pay, we pay, we, we are hiring market builders yep. and we pay them well. Now they're, they're amazing builders and they, they definitely work very closely with us. They understand what we're trying to do and we build as much efficiency into it as we can. But we, we don't look for major cost savings there. Um, but then the second part is is things like what, what a, the development community would call soft costs. So those are things like fees and consultants and all of that. We we go municipalities often support affordable housing by reducing the the fees that we have to pay. So okay. that yep. just comes straight off the cost. And then um, and then we just all the way through we're trying to find ways to still build a building that is beautiful and great to live in and but is is more cost effective to build and more cost effective to run and that's the last piece because we are going to own these buildings for a very long time uh, we're we're very interested in investing in the buildings to deliver savings over time so we, we, we build buildings that are more sustainable, that use less energy, less water, because that means it's going to be more affordable to run those buildings over the long term. The, the really neat intersection of this is when you can start tying you know, um, sustainability and green building features in with lower operating costs that in turn over time enable you to deliver more affordability. Like it's a it's a perfect segue and an intersection of, of of how these things can work together. In if you take a, a long term owner's perspective, mm-hmm, for sure. Uh, what do you what do you see as uh, future evolution of the world of real estate development and where it needs to go? Yeah, I, I think that that's a really <laughs> just a small question. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, no, I think in the short term, interestingly, what we're seeing across many communities is that the existing housing stock, the non-profit housing stock that we have is is due for renewal. And if you look at some of those sites, I mean, there's groups in Metro Vancouver that own land that currently accommodates like 3,500 homes, and it could probably accommodate four times that amount. Mm, wow. So you have these amazing individual opportunities or portfolios of properties that could be put to, to good use to provide housing for people and, and community spaces. And then, so that's kind of the, I think that's the, the next piece that we, where the, there's a huge opportunity and an opportunity to do it right, that, i.e. The, the projects are led with community benefit at, at its core, mm-hmm. right? And then the second piece, again, comes back to really what we're, we're trying to do, I think, and that is, is use like kind of the nonprofit uh, model to to do things that we've traditionally just seen the market developers do like right. we've seen large projects and 
and everyone kind of sits back and go, well, there's only, if we want to develop this really large piece of property, there's really only one group that can do it, and that's market developers. Hmm. I think what we're proving and others in our sector are proving is that we, there's an opportunity to have other players with a nonprofit community-oriented lens come and do those developments. Catalyst focuses on providing affordable rental housing. Some of their homes are rented at a deep subsidy rate, while others are just below the market rate. But this organization doesn't focus on home ownership, which is the next step along that housing continuum I spoke about earlier. Our next interview is with Jaden Tate, who works to help people enter the housing market through home ownership. My name is Jaden Tate. I am president and CEO of a company called Attainable Homes Calgary. That is my official work title. I work in affordable housing, helping our clients achieve the dream of attainable home ownership. Awesome. Okay, so let's dive right into uh, Attainable Homes. Can you, uh, it's kind of a unique organization. Can you describe the mandate of Attainable Homes Calgary? Yeah, so Attainable Homes Calgary was developed in the late 2000s by then-Mayor Dave Roncagne and members of council of the City of Calgary and administration to meet a very uh, specific need in the housing continuum. So in uh, Calgary in the 2000s, um, the housing market was evolving very rapidly, uh, whereby there were some deep affordability challenges throughout the spectrum one of which happened to be at the edge of market housing. So recognizing that, the mayor and people he was working with developed a company called Attainable Homes Calgary to help meet that market need. So what the mandate is for Attainable Homes, and it has essentially remained unchanged since 2009 when we were incorporated, what the mandate is is to use various tools, and we can get into that later, to assist people out of rental housing and into attainable home ownership. So essentially, through the tool use, boosting people from affordable housing into attainable owned housing for, for two essentially two reasons. To uh, allow people to uh, obtain uh, and attain that dream of, of home ownership, which is a very important part of our, our program and mission, and uh, number two, and, and this cannot be dismissed or undervalued, freeing up other space within the housing continuum for uh, for meeting other housing need. Could you could you describe uh, that latter part? What what what's how does your program or your um, mission uh, free up space for yeah, for so other house, affordable housing needs? Great question. So we we would see we would see housing and the supply of affordable housing like the supply of any other product. So there are finite resources that go into into preparing and uh, making available products. So there are finite affordable housing units across the various segments of the housing spectrum. Uh, so there are a finite amount of rental units, of deep subsidy of uh, rental units, of more near market rental units in, in the spectrum. If we can uh, unclog the spectrum, which always has people moving up and down it, so up towards home ownership and down into the, the deeper parts of, of maybe higher subsidy rental. Uh, if we can assist people out of 
uh, affordable rental and into home ownership, it's perceived that that unclogs various parts of the spectrum and then there are more units available to meet uh, what seems to be more demand than available inventory to house people. So to put it another way, if we can move a family, a family of four out of uh, a Calgary housing company project, which is another city of Calgary owned company that, that provides rental housing opportunities for people. If we can move them out of a rental unit and get them into attainable home ownership, that not only uh, allows them to go to continue on the trajectory of their life and fulfill their dreams of home ownership, that also allows that unit to be, to become essentially unclogged, uh, or or the the uh, the space to become unclogged, and another family that maybe has a deeper need can then move into that now vacant home and continue their journey along the housing continuum. That's hmm. the idea there. So, just a, a foundational question for folks that are perhaps new to housing and understanding housing: um, Why is it important for folks to get into home ownership itself? Terrific question. Well put. So we at Attainable Homes believe that um, the idea of home ownership itself is very good, very positive for our clients that attain it. So we see uh, as, as you know, real world examples of, of change. We see people and have done some research into looking at the benefits of home ownership. And we've seen our people, our clients that, that uh, buy their homes, uh, participate more in the community, um, not be fearful of being at the whims of a landlord or of, a, or of an agency that has um, uh, different types of rules around tenure and how long someone can mm. stay in the home. We see a real pride that develops in our clients that goes along with ownership, that they have their slice of the pie in a place that they can put their energy in and feel a real sense of belonging. Um, and there's, and that's not only for the parents. We see in the children the idea of a, of a place where they're going to live the next several years and a school down the street that they're going to become a part of. They can link with other kids in the neighborhood, other kids that they go to school with, and actually build those deep cultural and familial roots in a neighborhood through mm -hmm. home ownership that they may not be able to achieve through rental. Um, so as we've done our work and we've now helped uh, assist a thousand Calgarians and Calgarian families into home ownership in our 10 plus years, which is a pretty, pretty mm -hmm. strong number. We've seen a lot of our clients come back to us and be very thankful about the opportunity they've had to take the dream of a of a place they can call their own and convert that into a real lasting and profound change in the way they can live. So, and there's nothing wrong with rental housing. Rental housing is awesome. Housing is awesome. Having a shelter, having a place to call your home is very powerful. To call your own, your own home is very powerful. But the idea of ownership and the idea of what that means and the idea of being able to participate uh, more safely and meaningfully in the environment uh, and in the community is is pervasive and is one of the things we continue to hear from our clients is very important to them. Hmm. Awesome. And and yeah, I hadn't realized that you would hit uh, your organization had hit that that high a number. That's that's you know you multiply that by folks in the household that uh, that impacts a lot of people's lives, which is uh, which is amazing. Yeah, thanks, thanks, John. And it's really it's a testament to the to the original vision and how. 
and how deep the need is hmm. um, and the demand for this type of, of housing assistance um, or boost. Uh, the original plan was a thousand people in 10 years and we were very close to uh, getting it done in 10 years. It took to our 11th year to get to a thousand people. Um, so we were able to stick to that vision. Uh, interestingly, um, much has changed in Calgary since 2009 when we were yeah, starting. Yeah, I want to talk about that. So, yeah, so the fundamental, almost the fundamental way in which in in uh, in the way we do it and the way in and the way in which the market operates is very different than it was in 2009. But we've looked at uh, and and been um, kind of been at the the whim of some of those challenges. You know, really can't in any way ever understand what a real estate market like Calgary is going to do. But if the model and the tools you use to help people can remain flexible and robust at the same time, you can still meet the need even with the the core people who you're helping tends to change over time. It's been a really interesting hmm. thing to watch how we've evolved. Can you share some of the, the highlights of, say, from 2009 to present day? Uh, what are some of those key shifts in the housing market that have happened over time uh, and, and thoughts about how your organization has adapted accordingly? In, two, in the early, well, not the early 2000s, mid-2000s, so 2006 specifically, I alluded to this before, the Calgary real estate market, the residential real estate market changed very, very dramatically. We went from a a quite affordable city in terms of the value of, of an inner city uh, single family home or a suburban condo apartment, whatever it happens to be. And we went through a very dramatic uptick in the price of housing between 2005 up to the early parts of 2007. Essentially, mm -hmm. housing, uh, housing prices doubled in that time. And it was an incredible um, ride to, to witness and be a part of as, as a resident of the city at that time. Uh, and we started to experience massive challenges to affordability in this town. Um, we we had a very a very uh, a very popular city in terms of a destination for migrants and a very strong economy at that time. But we were leaving a lot of people out of the ability to buy houses, and um, we started to see a shift from predominantly single family growth to larger multifamily apartment developments all across the city. It was the mid-2000s that saw a dramatic shift in how Calgary is perceived to be affordable and how it has been built, developed mm. to. And you and I have talked about this in, in other conversations, John, just showing how you know nerdy we can get in our chats. We went from, <laughs> from up until that time, 105% of our population growth in Calgary occurred in the suburbs, mm -hmm. which means that the non-suburban areas of residential Calgary uh, experienced a population decline. <laughs> so mm -hmm. we, we kept growing, uh, and mostly single-family homes at the city's edge were, were being built and accommodating our, our, um, our population growth. Uh, fast forward to 2006, 2007, and that was nearing, I believe, a 50-50 split. So mm -hmm. uh, the city was changing very dramatically in terms of uh, where people were living and choosing to live, and uh, almost automatically, by virtue of the geographic difference between the suburbs and the inner city, the type of housing they could afford and live in. So uh, through all of this, um, again, it goes back to former mayor and council. Uh, it was seen that something probably should be done 
to help certain segments of the population move into uh, housing. Uh, Tandable Homes was invented uh, with this mission of 10, uh, a 10 year plan to move a thousand people into attainable home ownership. Attainable Homes created two tools, a down payment assistance loan model and perpetual affordable housing. Despite the original mandate to use both of these tools, Attainable Homes has only used the first tool, down payment assistance loan so far. This tool is used to facilitate moving people out of rental and into attainable home ownership. And it's a very simple model. So what a down payment assistance loan is, and there's an equity share component of it too. In fact, people listening in here might might be more familiar with the equity share model. The buyer um, typically has a good credit rating and, and is uh, might have a steady job and, and, and has you know all, all the pieces that go into being able to buy uh, a, a good steady um, supportable person to get a mortgage through a bank but they just might be short on the down payment right. So recognizing how much the market had changed in 2006, 2007, the city said, well, we can help to invest in those down payment loans. We'll participate as a lender of the loan in whatever equity is gained at resale, meaning there's an equity split when the program is exited slash resale, meaning when the, the buyer sells. Mm -hmm. And in exchange uh, for that, we'll give them a loan. So that is what we've been doing for over 10 years. If the market continues to be strong and you believe that residential real estate values never end, and of course, how could they <laughs> never end their meteoric rise, then everyone then everyone wins. The, the client gets into a home without a down payment or, or a negligible down payment or a, a minor down payment of $2,000. Uh, and then at resale, we get the loan amount back and uh, a portion of the bump, and then whatever uh, profit there was on the back end, uh, we then used to reinvest into more inventory to help more Calgarians. That's mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. That's how it works. The loan program was originally set up to assist folks like essential public workers, such as teachers, nurses, firefighters. In the early 2000s, these folks were often priced out of the market in Calgary, despite their stable incomes. So the down payment program and those loans gave folks the opportunity to buy a home. And then when the home got resold, it assisted attainable homes because the organization then shared in the increased value of that home. Ironic thing is, and I'll conclude very quickly here, um, the Calgary real estate market experienced a profound um, shock in the fall of 2014 uh, as the uh, value of oil decreased in 2014, so did the fortunes of our residential real estate market. So we have been in a in a very bumpy, flat, uh, almost in some areas, in some market segments, declining residential real estate market for the last six plus years. Mm -hmm. So the impact to our business is there isn't a lot of equity in the properties at resale. Which is so a fundamental assumption built into the model. It sure is. Yeah, so that yeah. creates a challenge to, to the to the model of, of an equity share program. The part two is we've seen uh, the client, um, the the makeup of our client base change quite dramatically, and the types of products that we're involved in bringing to market. So 
Whereas in our early years, we were more focused on inner city centric apartment style product. Uh, we've shifted and evolved into a more suburban townhouse style offering hmm. um, that is catering to younger families as opposed to maybe younger couples that we would have been catering to in the late 2000s. So it's been interesting to see us evolve based on what's gone on in the market from from an, a more urban centric approach in apartments to a more suburban centric ap approach in town housing available to young families. And has that been a shift that um, was predicated on uh, the market was fulfilling the inner city apartment role or, or you were just observing in the, the, the clients that were coming to you a different need? What how, what did that look like when you when you made those shifts? It, it's part of a most most of it is purely financial. So hmm. um, we've seen even, even as the market has, you know, declined or flattened since 2014, the the price point, the, the barrier of entry to buy an inner city apartment um, is quite high. So even though um, uh, even though Calgary is relatively affordable compared to Vancouver and Toronto, the nature of how our eligibility and our um, uh, the rules you must meet to be able to buy one of our homes uh, are such that we have income limits. And okay. the, in the income limit of, let's call it $83,000 for a single person, tends to equate to a certain amount of money that they can qualify for for a mortgage. Hmm. So 83000 tends to equate to about a $250,000 piece of property product okay um the way that the market has evolved in calgary it is very difficult to find a downtown or central business district or inner core one bedroom apartment product for anything less than two hundred and fifty thousand dollars that would be attractive to that single person so the nature of the availability of the product and its cost has outstripped the uh, limits of participation in our program. Hmm. Okay. So what? So what we've seen is that family income limit of one hundred and three thousand dollars, which is currently in place with us. Uh, that family can afford a two hundred and sixty thousand dollar thirteen hundred square foot townhouse at the suburban edge, but is unable to afford that four hundred thousand dollar thousand square foot two bedroom plus den in the inner city. So. It is mostly based on the price point and cost of the product uh, and the ability of that client to to qualify them for the mortgage based on our program requirements than it has anything to do with the desirability of the product, interestingly. Mm. Okay, so, <clears throat> so you have your mission and your model and then it just has to uh, move with the contours of the city and the real estate market, um, both from... The, the the type of project product and its uh, and its location in the city. Hey? Well put. Yep. Yeah. Okay. And and we've been we've been fortunate in that the down payment assistance loan continues to be applicable as a tool, even though um, the way it's applied, the product it's applied to, and and the bulk of the people that are taking advantage of the program has changed fundamentally since the start. 
Right. It's very interesting. Yeah. 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 Um, okay. So what are, what are some of the, in addition to some of the things that we've, we've talked about, what are some of the emerging trends that you see in the provision of affordable housing in our community? So you, you obviously have a, a particular uh, part of that spectrum that you talked about. Um, reflections in, in terms of your own, your own uh, part of the spectrum, but also other, uh, other areas that, that you've observed in, in your practice, in your career, in your position. I won't call, I won't call what I'm going to say a trend. I'll just call it a, a general observation. Um, providing affordable housing is, is expensive. It's very time consuming and um, it's very challenging. And uh, that tends to be based on uh, observations I've seen both in my, my own organization and in others about um, uh, about the need. So th there seems to be, uh, well, there is a, a very pronounced, dramatic and relentless need for affordable housing. So mm. we know that we know that's out there. Um, we we also, you know, almost counterintuitively have structures in place that make providing affordable housing very difficult to do. Uh, in terms of the financeability of the projects, getting access to land, getting access to um, uh, meaningful timelines with approvals, uh, ob ob obtaining uh, construction loans or, or development know-how to bring on the product. Um, it seems to be that as pronounced a need as there is for all kinds of affordable housing, we continuously undersupply it, uh, even though there seems to be an abundance of those that want to provide it. So uh, your question is timely because this is something I've been really wrestling with of late. If we seem to have the need for all types of affordable housing, we seem to have those that have the desire and the, the deep emotional inclination to provide it, and that's government and nonprofits and others, then why do we seemingly never have enough of it? And not by dozens of units, but by thousands of units. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that's and that's a question I'm starting to ask a lot out there. And, um, and the answers um, I don't think are as complex as some people want to think that they are. So w would you say that uh, a part of the reason um, is... I guess from, let's say, the development industry, the construction industry, and the folks who finance, has it been the result of a system that was oriented to uh, market-based solutions? Um, and it's, it's just really good at solving that problem. And now that the problem is getting redefined, that the systems and the processes and the know-how just aren't oriented the right way? Yes, with a little bit more on top of that. Mm. We, we meet housing need generally through uh, the, the for-profit marketplace, through those that run businesses to develop, build, and compete with others that run those businesses to supply housing. That's generally what we do in Canada and across North America. So mm. it's it's a for-profit enterprise, which is fine. I, I come from almost, oh boy, 15 plus, almost 20 years of work within the development industry, and I've loved it. I've 
I've loved the challenges of of product design and understanding market need and uh, getting your your projects uh, designed, approved, and built in the face of all kinds of situations and risks and and um, environments, which you and I, John, have been a part mm-hmm. of together sometimes. Mm-hmm. But uh, when I look to the provision of housing that is not built for profit, by definition, because it is not for profit or is meeting a need that is beyond a builder or developer supplying it, and then they can make money to fuel the remainder of their business, it is less attractive to build that form of housing. A business typically does not, a, a for-profit business does not go into business to lose money or to do things that don't allow it to replicate its business activity. Yeah, I mean, that, that's a stupid thing to say, but it's very true. So um, developers and builders are some of the the most giving people you'll ever meet. They understand the value of shelter. They understand the dignity that that shelter, one of one of a human's core needs of what providing that means. They get it. They're very good at marketing it. They're very good at product development, building everything else. But without without profit to fuel the business, businesses can't continue. So we can continue to ask the for-profit seg- sector to supply affordable housing only to a point because if it just gets more and more expensive and the market dries up and there's no profitability in it, people that are in business will do other things. So I I start to look at this from a different perspective. Um, But before I go there, I want to just conclude on your thought. So we, so systematically and the way we've set up how we build and develop because we process land and because we designed communities and because we build product for profit, um, we, we have set ourselves up in, in financing regimes and in uh, even project design processes in a very particular and specific way. Mm. So it becomes very challenging to meet the social housing needs when the infrastructure of approval, review, and financing is done for profit. Yeah, right, right. So um, the big the big thing is if we actually societally and culturally believe that access to housing is important, if we actually believe that, mm-hmm. then we have tremendous opportunities to allow that to happen. But it needs to be done in a way that shifts from, well, well, we'll simply piggyback the delivery of the social housing need on uh, the for-profit housing delivery model to a way that we can actually look at what the, the housing providers on the affordable side need to bring on those homes right. and, and those housing solutions. And that's where government and other agencies that control not only the process, but the access to land need to take a really good look in the mirror about what they can do to facilitate the delivery of housing for everybody. Terrific. Okay. That's, uh, yeah, some really good, really good insights there. I I think your point on the societal shift is, uh, is a really essential one, uh, because it's, it's like, we can't, uh, if new, problems are emerging we can't be doing the same things to address them uh and there's some pretty fundamental um 
institutions uh, that that can help with this uh, from government to financial institutions, what have you, uh, that can play a role. And I think that what's helpful about that idea of the housing spectrum uh, is that it's a spectrum of solutions as well. So there may, there may be an intervention, well, like attainable homes itself, right? Uh, Like you are uh, providing a solution at one part of it, but that doesn't mean that it's the same answer for uh, emergency shelter. Right. So I think that, that that it it requires this um, yeah, much more holistic understanding and understanding as well that intervention happens um, in a little more of a tactical way. There's not just this one size fits all approach to getting shelter for, for folks. Totally. And it's, it, it's, it's a real, honestly, it's a really simple solution. Um, but, but enabling the opportunity to meet the need has to be tied back to the values um, that would underlie meeting the need. So if we societally do value that people, all people should have access to a certain level of housing, mm-hmm then we have the ability right now with what we control with land and how we finance access to land and building things, we have the ability to bring on the housing right now. The simple fact is, and and I distill it to this point, uh, if we are not bringing on the housing that has been demonstrated to be needed by people across the spectrum, then that's proving to me that maybe we don't value it collectively in the way that certain members of of our of our population want us to believe that Mm -hmm. this is this is where i get to play classic urban planner and point to europe right if (laughs) if it's important that everyone has access to a certain level of housing which implies other things like dignity and participation in culture and in society then you're darn right we will find a way to make it happen Mm -hmm. um the 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 secret here is that government and um, uh, agencies that act in the public good control uh, significant portions of land. And the thing that housing needs to exist until we design and learn how to build uh, housing in the sky, (laughs) (laughs) the thing that housing needs is the land on which to build the foundation. Hmm. And we have the land out there controlled by public agencies to convert to housing that could essentially meet in Canada, in certain cities in Canada, I certainly believe this of Calgary, to meet that housing demand right now. But we have not presented a case or presented an argument or presented a a strong enough, I don't know, plea about the dignity and humanity of shelter for all that has allowed us to make that happen. Well said. I'm going to ask you one more question. Okay. As always, we asked Robert and Jaden about a city they love and why they love it. My favorite city that I've ever been to. Can I give you two answers? Sure. I'll allow two. That's it. You know I would need to. Probably my favorite city in the world, this is very cliche, is Paris. Mm-hmm. Um, I've never been bored in Paris. Every time I go, uh, I just start wandering around and I see stuff that uh, blows my mind. Um, and it's not just the big famous stuff. It's watching how people interact with and live within that community, within that city and the communities within it. Um, 
is mesmerizing and it's so diverse and it's um uh and it's diverse every time i go back the neighborhoods seemingly change hmm. in a very profound way and i just love going there and walking around so that's that's an easy answer the other one is tokyo uh i was lucky a couple years ago to go to tokyo for its sheer size and everything it's been through over the many years it's been around um there's something incredibly well planned and orderly about that city um how it's laid out how that many people can interact and create something that has such beauty to it mm -hmm. um and is not just pure chaos is is really challenging to me and 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 always tests my assumptions of how humans are which i really like like how can 20 plus million people come together in this space and make it work in the yeah. way that that it works and yeah. that's really interesting to me um and the food and the friendliness of the people and um it's not just that the buildings are big and dense because they're not there's a um a uniformity across the city and still a human scale for how many people live there that's very welcoming and comfortable so i i anticipate that i'll be going back there and um, exploring as many of the neighborhoods as I can one day when we can travel again. I think I'm going to have to go with Glasgow. All right. Um, hometown. Yeah, hometown <laughs> where I grew up. Uh, moved here when I was 26, so I spent most of those 26 years in Glasgow. And it, it's an amazing city because it has a huge history. I, I, I still remember when I was, I think it was like grade seven, and we all got assembled in the assembly hall and we all got given a coffee mug. And we were like, what's this? And it was Glasgow 800. Oh my gosh. It was the 800 birthday of Glasgow, the city of Glasgow. And so when you talk about kind of resilient communities and, and history, uh, Glasgow is amazing. And, and that, that, there's something that is imbued in the city because of that history. Hmm. Um, it's resilient, it's tough, it's a tough city, and it's been through a lot. And, uh, but it, it, has a, it, it, it has a character that accepts that diversity, right? Hmm. I mean, a huge, there's been huge industry, there's been huge poverty, there's, but there's an amazing creative community, an amazing business community, a non-profit community. Um, so that, the interaction of all that, and and also at the end of the day, they're some of the funniest people I've ever met. It's, <laughs> that always helps. So you can laugh at yourself and laugh at your 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 trials and tribulations. So ah. that always helps. Okay, terrific. A key part of developing innovative solutions in affordable housing is to understand the folks who are actually building these developments. By understanding their models and goals, we can then explore how these organizations can incorporate environmental solutions into their developments, both to the benefit of the residents and to ensure the sustainability of their organizations. As we move through the Solutions Lab process, we may return with discussions from other kinds of housing providers. And if you have any examples of affordable housing developments that have incorporated innovative approaches to environmental solutions, please let us know. We would love to hear from you. 360 Degree City is created by our team at Intelligent Futures. To learn more about the work we do, go to intelligentfutures.ca. I'm John Lewis. Thanks for stopping by.